We grew up going to the beach as a, as a kiddo in our, our family. We would often go uh, down to uh, the coast of, of North Carolina and, and hang out there. And um, I remember Grandma and Grandpa used to, used to be down there. They'd get a beach house, and it, would, it was always a, it was a sweet time. And I loved to play at the beach when I was a kid. But I remember one particular time um, when I was, I was just running out to, to, to get into the surf, and my grandma said, yelled my name and said, hey, come back here for a minute. And she, she called me back, and uh, I just still remember standing there on the, on the stand looking down at her, and she said, I need to tell you something. I know, you, I know you're about to enjoy the, the ocean, and it's, it's wonderful, but you need to be very careful because there's something there that you can't see that's very dangerous. And she proceeded to tell me about this undercurrent that uh, the lifeguards had been warning about, that, that if you weren't careful and you got caught in this undertow, that it would pull you down and out to sea and that you were going to be in deep trouble and you would, you'd not be able to come back. And she said, I know you're a good swimmer. She said, but you need to be very, very careful. Even though you can't see it, it is there and it is going to pull you away. So stay close to the shore. This morning as I was reading this text today and, and this week, I, I couldn't get that picture out of my mind. Because what the Lord shows us in Revelation chapter 13 is that there is something that we can't see in the world in which we live. Last week we said it's a story behind the story. Well, we're going to see here there's, there's, there's an unseen power in our world that is constantly pulling us down away from heavenly thinking and away and out to sea, if you will, away from, from the Lord. That there is an unseen spiritual battle that is raging even right now. That the Lord in His kindness gives us eyes to see what it looks like in Revelation chapter 13. We found ourselves here in the, the third cycle of this presentation of what God is doing to preserve His people from the resurrection until His return that is being laid out here in, in the book of Revelation. This third cycle runs from chapter 12 through, through 14. And in it, there's... There's three beings that are, that are prominent apart from God. Three beasts, if you will. Last week in chapter 12, we saw this, this dragon who we learned to be Satan and his opposition to Jesus and to Jesus' people, uh, the church. This week in chapter 13, we're going to be introduced to two more beasts. Uh, the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth. And we're going to see that these three beasts, they work together uh, to, to influence and, and, and build the city of Babylon, the world system called the great harlot in Revelation chapter 14 and 17. We'll see more about that in the, the weeks ahead. But what's important for us to see this morning is that, that these three beasts are working to oppose the good things that the Lord is doing. We have an unholy trinity working against the Holy Trinity. Satan, the dragon, and the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth, his, his henchmen. And as we're studying this, I think we're, we're going to see that there's a, there's a word for us today, one of, of both caution and encouragement. So as we, as we think about this, this whole text together, here's kind of a, a big idea that might summarize what this, this section is about God's people must persevere in faith despite the satanic onslaught of persecution 
and deception. God's people must persevere in faith despite the constant onslaught of satanic deception and persecution. There is constantly a pull from the evil one and the world system that he oversees that calls us away from the Lord. But here, we're going to have a strong encouragement to persevere in the true God. The way this uh, chapter lays out is basically two sections. We're going to see first in verses uh, 1 through 12, there's a sea beast who destroys. There's a sea beast, a beast of the sea who destroys. And then in verses 11 and following, there's going to be an earth beast who deceives. An earth beast who deceives. They work together under the oversight of Satan against God's people. Let's begin here in Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 12, with the sea beast who, who destroys. And I, John, the one receiving this vision, saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on, his, on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, and its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon. For he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Verse 5, the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. And it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. This first beast arises out of of the sea. Now for a Jewish uh, man who is receiving this vision and to, um, to, to Jewish hearers, You've got to understand that the, the sea was viewed as a symbol of, of chaos and danger and the dwelling place of, of evil. So whatever this, this beast is, John would have perceived it as unsafe, inhumane. It's coming from the place of darkness. And again, he does see a, a beast, which when you see something like this, you've got to ask the question, Where is that in the Old Testament? Well, very likely this is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, 
where we see four beasts, a lion, a bear, and a leopard, and then a fourth beast that is described as terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. Now, for for Daniel in his day, the beast represented the great government's empires of Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece. And then the fourth beast that Daniel saw was a future beast, an exceedingly great empire. Most certainly the Roman Empire that was soon to to arise. Now, the reason these, these government rulers are described as beastly is because they don't use their power and their authority for people's good as God designed governments to do. Rather, they use their power to control and corrupt and to oppress, particularly the people of God. So as John sees this beast, it appears to be some sort of composite or collage of the beasts that Daniel saw. But but it's no longer a a past and, and merely future threat. This beast that John is perceiving is on the scene now. It's presently preying upon and ravaging the citizens over which it has control. This beast itself is filled with symbolism that is intended to terrify us as we look at this thing coming out of the sea. Ten horns. This beast has complete power. Seven heads. There's this comprehensive worldwide authority that this beast appears to have. Ten diadems displaying some sort of kingly glory. Who or what is this beast? Well, from John's vantage point, the beast most certainly would have been Rome. Would have understood this to be the Roman Empire that Daniel foresaw that he was living through. It's the reason that he's exiled to Patmos because of his testimony of the Word of God that this beast hates And has persecuted him. And that's why he's even there at this moment. Rome was oppressive and tyrannical. Also, one of the descriptions of the beast you see here is that it had blasphemous names on its heads. Which certainly would have been an allusion to the the Roman Caesars who used titles such as Lord and Son of God and Savior of the world. That's how they referred to themselves. Claiming to be divine, which just a side note, you can notice why when a Christian in this first century context says Jesus is the Son of God, He is the Lord, He is the Savior of the world, that's high treason that you can lose your head for. Because Caesar says, no, 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 I'm Lord, I'm Savior, I'm the Son of the Gods. But I think it's important for us to understand that this beast isn't confined simply to the first century Roman Empire. As we've seen throughout this book, this is likely referring to every manifestation of evil in all governments throughout history. Not that every government system is equally wicked, but the beast is always working in the midst of them all. 
And I think the most important observation that we're supposed to see here is that the beast is using, well, he's, he's working for Satan. Verse 2, to the beast the dragon gave his power and his throne and his great authority. This beast, just like the second beast that's going to come up in a moment, is a servant of Satan. It acts as this dragon's henchman advancing his evil agenda in the world. Now, in case you're just tuning into this and aren't real familiar with, uh, with, with, with the Bible, it would be assumed that all of this is under the sovereign control of God. That Satan is always on a leash. He's only allowed to, per- to do what God permits. So God is ultimately the one who rules all things, but for a period of time in history, he allows Satan to work his evil purposes And God sovereignly uses what was intended for evil for good. So Satan is working evil purposes, but God is working good purposes even using that evil. Well, verse 3, we come to one of the more controversial parts of the book of Revelation. We see that one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. But its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. What does this mean? Well, the word that's used here for wound shows up 11 times in the book of Revelation. It's uh, often uh, translated plagues. The word is always used of God afflicting plagues as, as judgment upon someone or something. So it appears here in the same way that the head of this beast is slain by God in some sense. Now, where would we find something like that in the Old Testament? Well, the theme of God slaying the dragon and the beast begins, of course, with the prophecy in Genesis chapter 3.15 that we looked at last time with the Christ promised uh, the Christ, the, the promised offspring of the seed of woman crushes the serpent's head. Then we also see in Isaiah chapter 27, a prophecy of, of the end of all things, that the Lord with his, his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, a sea beast, the fleeing serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. There's this picture of God slaying these beasts. Another allusion would even be the the book of Job where we see two beasts that God slays and gives Job great comfort in because Job has been terrorized by Satan and his beasts, but God rules over them and will ultimately defeat them. So what we have here is God defeating the head of the beast, but its wound appears to be healed. Some would see this as... um, I think a straightforward interpretation is that through the the crucifixion and the resurrection, Jesus defeated the beast, defeated the dragon, defeated all of the satanic opposition. Yet, there's confusion. Okay, if Jesus wins, then why do things still go on like they do? Well, we know because God is saving a people right now, and someday He will return and finish things off. But the world looks at this and says, it must just be a fairy tale. This Jesus of yours sure hasn't changed much in history, has he? Let's go with the beast. This is what it appears to mean here. 
Now, many have wondered if this head of the beast is, has a specific reference to uh, an antichrist figure who is to come. And I would say maybe. It, it does appear from other places in Scripture that, that some sort of, of government figure in the last days will arise and embody everything that opposes God. This person would be referred to as the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And some have suggested that this, this person, this man of lawlessness, potentially referred to here, would be killed, but then through some sort of satanic power, be raised up in some sort of imitation, counterfeit imitation of Jesus' resurrection, would raise up, and then through that deceive many? Maybe so. But I think it's very important for us to, to keep in mind here that the big picture, listen to what John, this same John, says to the churches in, the church in Ephesus when he writes about the idea of Antichrist. He says, as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. John says, you've heard an Antichrist is coming. Okay. But watch out now for all of the Antichrists that abound. They're everywhere. Because there's a system that the beast is running that is about oppression and deception and the church needs to be on guard. So I would just caution us to not spend tons of time looking for who is the man that fulfills this picture and do so in a way that loses sight of the fact that this is going on all the time around us. Well, verse 4, we see the world's response. They worship Satan and the beast instead of worshiping the Lord. They say things about the beast that should only be said about God. They say, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Now, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, you would say, oh, no, you don't. Because this is a direct contradiction to the song of Moses. You remember after God flexed at the Red Sea and brought Israel through in his mighty saving power that Israel sang the song of Moses saying, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? But this beast, he's using his power here to, to call people to worship him, to worship him, the dragon, instead. And they do. They worship the beast. Now, I just want to make a side comment about this. You've got to understand that Satan is very subtle in his deception. He's called crafty. He's tricky. I mean, most people would not assume that they are devoted to worshiping Satan. If you ask them, right? People who don't follow Jesus, most people would not say that. I remember the first time I heard that as a non-Christian, it was thoroughly offensive. I was like, I'm not satanic. You know, I'm not, I'm not a Satan worshiper. What's wrong with you? But what John wants us to know right here is that there is a world system that is deceitful, that is crafty, 
that is tricky. And one of Satan's great tricks is to get us to follow his ways without knowing that's actually what we're doing. To actually spin it so it makes it seem like it's our idea. Makes it feel like what's true to who we really are and what our heart really wants. He's crafty like that. I think it's also just important to notice here the power of this beast. I mean, the world says, who is like the beast who can fight against it? I think if you're a, if you're a, a follower of Jesus, I think, you know, I think you know what that means. Certainly that's a blasphemous uh, statement. But if you try and follow Jesus, there is a constant undertow that is pulling you away from doing that. There are continual messages and movements and ideas and ideologies that continually pull strong against those who follow Jesus. I think it's important for us to understand this power and to understand that we are not strong enough to be able to resist it in and of ourselves. This is why we need Christ The one who died for our sins and then rose from the dead and now gives us his spirit to empower us to war against these worldly systems by clinging to him by faith and helping one another toward heaven. It's what the church is intended to be, helping each other to look to Jesus and be strengthened by him in the midst of a world that's pulling backwards because these beasts are cultivating this world system that's like gravitational pull toward hell. Verse 5, this beast proclaims proud and blasphemous words for 42 months. This is the fifth time we've seen a reference to this period of time in Revelation. It's been referred to as time, times, and half a time, 1,260 days, 42 months. And in each instance, I think this refers to a time of tribulation for God's people as foretold in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, that begins at the resurrection and will conclude at the return of Christ. This beast has power to speak blasphemous things from the resurrection until the, the return. Notice also here that the beast makes war against God's name, verse 6. Utters blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. The beast hates God. He detests his majesty. He abhors the beauty of his holiness. And he does everything that he can do to twist and to distort and to confuse how people think about him. It's called here blasphemy. Just lying about God. Notice also here that the the beast makes war against God's people. Verse 7, also is allotted to make war on the saints and to conquer them. The beast not only hates God, but he hates God's people just as the dragon does. And this this beast, this, this world's satanic system is aimed at quenching faith. Aiming to stamp out the saints, to conquer them. Which that word should, should stand out to you because it's Christ who conquers and through Him we overcome and conquer. But the beast wants to do whatever it can to make sure that doesn't happen. This is, by the way, behind the scenes of spiritual warfare. 
This is what's going on. There is a pull for your soul all the time. But praise God, we have a Savior who will indeed, as we just sang, hold us fast. This is why He gives this word to assure us of that. Notice here also that the beast demands worship in God's place. Verse 7, authority was given it over uh, every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world and the book of the uh, book of life of the Lamb who was slain. This beast is given permission to exercise coercive authority over people from every tribe and nation around the world. And many will respond by giving themselves to the satanic propaganda of the beast. This is what he's aiming to do, to deceive people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Which we know also that the Lord right now is saving people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. You can see this war for souls. Now we would do a bit of injustice if we just glossed over that last part of verse 8. Speaking here of everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of, the life, book of life of the Lamb who was slain. We hear, we hear here of a, a, a book that existed before the foundation of the world. So already it's going to be mysterious to us. That in eternity past, this, this book had names written in it. This book is referenced by different names in Exodus 32.20, Isaiah 4.3, Daniel 12.2, Luke 10.20, Philippians 4.3. Five times it's used in the book of Revelation, usually as the book of life. But here we get the longest title. The book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now again, there is much mystery that God alone knows regarding His recording of names in His book. For the Christian, however, we are here to find great comfort. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, God has loved you from eternity past. From before the foundations of the world. How much did you do before the foundation of the world? Not a thing. He loves you because He loves you. For some reason that is unfathomable. Only known in the mind of God. For some reason He has loved us in eternity past and inscribed our names upon His book and as we see that, we are to see that we've been redeemed by His blood, recorded in His book in some way that was predestined before the foundation of the world. Which I think also is intended to, to highlight something here. The book of life of the Lamb who was slain. The slaying of the Lamb of God, Jesus upon the cross, was planned in eternity past. So the crucifixion was not just some accident that happened in history. This is part of the reason that history even exists. It's to arrange everything in such a way that the crucifixion can happen so that the glory of Christ can be put on display 
that there he would suffer for sinners. And then he would die and then he would rise from the dead. And that all who would turn from their sins and trust in him can enjoy him forevermore. That in some sense is what history is about. It's about Jesus being glorified and delighted in because he was slain for sinners like you and for like me. And of course, we must ask the question, well then what about those whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world? What I would say is that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, Deuteronomy 29, 29. And then what we're called to do is that today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. If you hear the voice of of a wonderful, merciful Savior crying out to you to turn from your sin and to believe upon him who was crucified for sinners like you, then turn. Believe upon him. He is your only hope. It is very clear when we get to the final judgment, as we will see, that no one goes to hell because of what God does. People are charged with their own sins. They are held accountable for their own rebellions. Look unto Christ and be saved. Now, a response is required for God's revelation that we see here in verse 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. That should sound familiar to us if you've been with us for this whole series. Jesus gave this command to each of the seven churches after he gave his specific word to them. Well, here once again, this word is for the churches. He was an ear, let him hear. It's for those who will be saved and brought into the church. He was an ear, let him hear. Why does the church need to tune in right here? Well, because there's a great temptation for the church to accommodate to the pressure of satanic institutions to compromise faithfulness to King Jesus because another king threatens to kill them. This vision of the beast is intended to sober us, to help us see that we must not yield to the bullying of the beast even for a moment. We're to hear this and receive it and prepare to resist. And as we prepare to resist the beast, we must also prepare to suffer for the Savior. Verse 10, if anyone is to be taken, to cap, uh, taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. It's an allusion to Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 2, which speaks of the suffering of God's people during a time of exile. Well, we here are exiles upon the earth, traveling toward heaven, and on the way home, The book of Revelation is written to teach us that persecution is coming and possibly even death. But we are to keep trusting and never bow a knee to the beast. The Lord's direction is clear for us here. Verse 10. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. Persecution must be met with persevering faith. The persecuting fury of Satan must be met with persevering faith of the saints. 
This, this word is intended to stir that in our hearts, to provoke us to trust the Lord, to know that He sees and He knows what is happening and He cares for us in the midst of it, so much so that He would give this word to us to warn us and to encourage us. And this is what the church is doing even now. Together we are looking to Jesus and leaning upon our fellow believers and leaning into the hope of our heavenly home until we see Him face to face. This is what the church is to be doing now. Which I think it's important just to to note here that the book of Revelation is intended to prepare and strengthen you for suffering. I, I, I don't mean this in a mean way at all. But our hope, our hope is not to be raptured out of a tribulation. But our hope in the book of Revelation, I think, is clearly presented in the fact that we will be resurrected after perseverance through a tribulation. God calls His church to endure by faith and to prepare to trust Him no matter what tribulation may come, knowing that He indeed will hold us fast. That is the sea beast who destroys, who seeks to kill the church. Well, secondly now, beginning in verse 11, we see the the earth beast who deceives. And of course, these two, because they're working in tandem, there's going to be some some crossover and mixing here of, of what they're doing. But this earth beast deceives, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived, and was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Verse 16, also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slaved, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man, and his number is six, six, six. John, in his vision now, goes from seeing this beast that arises out of the sea, bringing destruction, to now seeing another beast, a beast that is on the land, that arises from the earth. Verse 11, it has two horns like a lamb. This beast is likely an allusion to Daniel chapter 8 where we see a ram with two horns. It's like that beast. It's also like the, the, first, also like the first beast. The land beast speaks on behalf of, of Satan. Now it's interesting because this, 
this, uh, this beast has another name. In chapter 16 and 19 and 20, the earth beast is also called the false prophet. So this, this beast is known for being a liar. The other one's a liar too, but this one's known for lying. This is what it's about. It's a liar. It's a deceiver. You see, because it's called a false prophet because tr- true prophets lead people to worship the true God, where false prophets lead people to worship false gods. This beast uses its authority to trick people into worshiping the first beast, the world system, the government oppression, which they're all working together to worship Satan. He, he professes to represent the truth and appears harmless as a lamb. Yet he has the voice of a dragon. He speaks like the serpent who allures and deceives and makes the first beast's claims sound plausible and persuasive. Verse 12, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and he makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Well, how does he do that? Well, in verses 13 through 16, we see this this presentation of miraculous powers being worked on the earth uh, by this beast of the earth. And these, these, these miraculous signs are deceiving people into worshiping the sea beast and its image. Now, there's lots of discussion about what those images mean, but what I want us to do is to not lose the point. He's communicating imagery of counterfeit imitation. This is is Satan's way. He deceives people into thinking his words are true. The, the, The religious nature of this false beast becomes prominent here. He does miracles that mimic the works of Moses and Elijah. When you look through those miracles in 13 through 16, you're like, that sounds a whole lot like Moses and and Elijah, which sounds a whole lot like, back to chapter 11, with the two witnesses. So we see here that just as the two witnesses from chapter 11 reflected the ministry of Moses and Elijah, here the false prophet is the satanic counterpart, the opposing their work, attempting to deceive people into not listening to the true witness of the church, but instead being wowed into following the beast. And Jesus warned that this sort of deception was coming. Listen to this from Matthew 24, 24. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. You see, this this second beast is cultivating a, a counterfeit church, if you will, luring people away from following the true God. In Revelation chapter 11, we have God's true representatives performing signs of power by the Holy Spirit to the glory of the true God. But here, this this demonic representative performs counterfeit signs by Satan, by Satan's power to, to dazzle and to deceive people into following him. He imitates God. 
trying to trick people to think that they're actually worshiping God when they're not. Listen to this from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul warned about this to the Corinthian church that actually is pretty relevant for our day. The Corinthian church, they loved what was trendy. They loved what was, you know, what was happening on YouTube and on social media. They loved who was the, the hot new book and the big new idea. And they loved that, that trendy philosophers who would come through with their twistings of biblical teachings. They, they fell for it often. And Paul's warning the Corinthians, be careful. There's some people who look like Jesus, but they're telling you about another Jesus. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 11. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan dis disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So this, this false prophet was going on already in, Paul, in Paul's day while he's ministering to the Corinthian church. This is happening already there in the first century. And it sure hadn't slowed down. And it won't until Christ returns. Now, one thing that I think is very important for us to notice here is that when God permits, Satan can perform miracles. When, when, when God permits, Satan can perform miracles. Can you think of a place in the Old Testament where that happened? Remember Moses going to Pharaoh, and he does a couple of the plagues, and the magicians do the same things. And the reader, if it's fresh for you, you're reading through and you're like, uh-oh. These guys, got, they got something going on. <laughs> but then the Lord, like, you know, after, I think it's after number three, he's like, he pulls the plug, he's like, no more. Um, he just pulls the plug on them, and they can't do it anymore because God's showing that his power is supreme. You'll even remember they threw down the staff. So Moses threw down his staff, and it turned into a snake. They threw down their staffs, and it turned into snakes. They're like, what's up now? And <laughs> Moses' snake ate their snakes, and Moses is like, what's up now? And this is kind of the picture of what's going on here, that, that Satan can work miracles when God permits. This is why it's very important to not be led simply by, by what you see, but rather by what God says. Because what God does will never contradict what God says. This is why Jesus' miracles were done. He did miracles to attest to the fact that he had authority to say what he said. Satan and his, his henchmen here, they're doing these miracles by his power trying to get people to think that Satan has the true message. This is why you need to know the word. Well, verse 15, it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who do not worship the beast, uh, um, the image of the beast to be slain. I'm not sure what that means. A lot of people have a lot of guesses. I don't know. We'll find out. All what we do know here is that the point is, if you won't bow down to this image, whatever it is, you will die. Which again, echoes your Old Testament. 
This sounds very familiar to Daniel chapter 3 where Nebuchadnezzar made this, this image and said, unless you bow down, you will die. I think it's also important here to notice that we, we find the false prophet requiring people to receive a mark of allegiance. So as all of this is going on and the pressure is increasing and there's the call to worship the, the beast, which, by the way, do you notice the unholy trinity and how it's working? Satan, the, quote, father of darkness, calls his son who appears to be slain, the beast of the sea, but is raised up to be magnified by this spirit of the age in a way that's going to lead people away into unholiness, which is the exact opposite of God, the true glorious Father, who sent His only begotten Son, who truly did die for sinners and then rose from the dead, who is now glorified by the Holy Spirit so that people will delight in Him and have their sins forgiven and be called into the church and cultivated into a holy people. Satan hates what God delights in. Well, as God calls us to have allegiance for all to see, Satan does as well. Verse 16, this beast causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, prominent areas, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So the, the, the beast conspires here to require a, a public mark of allegiance. If you want to live on this planet, if you want to eat, if you want to drink, if you want to live in this society, you've got to get the mark of the beast. Now, what is this mark of the beast? This is one of the most popular, debated, and misused, confused parts of the book of Revelation. <laughs> if you want some strange ideas about what this might be, just Google. Well, maybe you don't. Anyway, um, for all the, there are tons of interesting ideas that people have come up with. I actually have a book that we read in seminary called When Time Shall Be No More. And it has a huge chapter of all of the interpretations of 666 from like the first century up until whenever it was written. And it is it's crazy train, okay? It's, there's a lot of interesting stuff. Um, I mean, over the years, there have been hundreds of combinations of these numbers that have led to identify Nero, Muhammad, Hitler, Obama, Trump. I mean, everybody you can think of. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's your iPhone face recognition. It's your credit card chips. It's uh, those chips you put in your dog, you know. Some, peop some people are getting chips in them. Listen, y'all, I ain't doing that. But uh, what? <laughs> even this, this past week, I, was at a, I went to a coffee shop and got a couple drinks, and the total was 666. And uh, the lady behind the register looked at it. She goes, oh, my. She said, <laughs> she looked at She goes, you want to order something else? Yeah. <laughs> So what is the 666? 
I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I do think, though, that, that it's important to remember that numbers throughout the book of Revelation are symbolic in a way that's, that's different than they are in other genres, right? So in other genres, if we hear uh, a number, like in something historical, this happened in, you know, three days, Jesus in the ground for three days. Well, that's not intended to be interpreted metaphorically. Well, it's just like, it's the spirit of three days. No, it means three days, okay? It means the day he was crucified, the day he was ended, and then the day he rose, okay? So that's, that, you have that. But, but in apocalyptic literature, numbers are intended to be symbolic and understood that way uniquely, at least oft, often they are. And we'll remember throughout the book of Revelation, the number of seven is often used of, of God, the seven spirits of God, referring to the, the Holy Spirit himself. We see sevens, the number of completeness, all the way through. You have seven seals and seven uh, trumpets and seven bowls, and you have the seven thunders, this picture of completeness. Well, it even gives us a little clue here. It's the, the number 666 is the number of a man. It's incompleteness. It's not com complete. And in this sense, the picture here is of this unholy trinity working together in the age of man, I think, um, yet yeah, to present itself as God, but it's not. So however that shows up, whether it's a chip or it's a, a dip or a trip, I don't know what it's going to be. Who knows what it's going to be exactly? We can't miss the point. The mark of the beast, this 666, is clearly being contrasted with the sealing of God's servants in chapter 7. There in chapter 7, God's people receive his seal, which is called his name. His name is placed upon their heads so that heaven and earth and everybody can, say, can see these belong to the Lamb. They're his. They're marked out. They're protected even if they go through persecution, even if they're put in the grave, they will be raised up because they are his and they'll be his forevermore. That's what the sealing is in chapter 7. Well, here too, the beast calls his servants to be sealed, to wear an allegiance where all can see it. So I think as we read this, the point isn't that our, our goal should be to calculate the numbers in order to identify a particular person. But it's intended to encourage us to develop discernment regarding Satan's many schemes to infiltrate and destroy and persecute the church. He comes both through external coercive pressure, persecution, and through seductive, alluring propaganda, his deception and false teaching. And the way we live, the words we say, the things we do, show who our allegiance is to. All the time. Your allegiance is being put on display through everything that we do and say. That's what I think this is referring to. That there is a world system that is opposed to God. And that if you, if you want to make it here, you better get in line. And that's going to show itself in everything that you do. Or, by faith, you're going to know that this is a kingdom that is passing away and that there is a kingdom that is being built that will not pass away. And by faith, you will follow Christ and be marked as His. Now, I know that might not be as exciting as trying to figure out what 666 is on one level. But that 
is practical for everything you do. Every word you say. Every temptation you resist. You're declaring an allegiance to King Jesus. It matters. Now as we conclude, we're going to conclude with three applications that should seem clear from coming out of our text. The first is this. Do not trust what you see, but trust what God says. Do not trust what you see, but trust what God says. One of the often repeated patterns of deception in the Bible is people trusting what they see rather than what God says. We could do a bunch, but just think of Adam and Eve. When she saw that the fruit was good, she forgot what God said about it. Delray Baptist Church, we must learn to be a discerning people. To be very careful with everything that we hear, every message that is coming, whether it be from the White House or some religious house, wherever it's coming from, because there is a deceiver that is out there twisting ideas to get us to fall away into deception that we might give our allegiance to the beast. We must be very careful because many churches today are falling prey to taking their cues from the culture instead of Christ. To want to stay on the right side of history in the name of compassion or relevance. Nothing is more compassionate or relevant than calling people to trust God and obey His Word. There's nothing more compassionate. There's nothing more relevant. Do not trust what you see, but trust what God says. Second thing, make your allegiance evident. Make your allegiance evident. The world system will pressure you to get in line with the spirit of the age, to get on the right side of history, to demand you to bow a knee to the image of the beast. In whatever form it's going to manifest itself, You don't have to look long to see it. Do not yield. Stand with Daniel who stood in faith and say, you you could throw me in the fire, you could throw me in the lions, I don't care what you're going to do. No. Do not be ashamed to follow Jesus. He suffered on the cross for us. He rose from the grave for us. He intercedes even now for us. He has promised that right now He is building a place for us, John 14. And He's coming back for us soon. Do not be ashamed of Jesus. Display your allegiance to Him in your words, in your resisting of sin, in your discerning of messages of everything you hear, rejecting lies, being willing to suffer and be persecuted for His name. Remember Jesus' promise. Matthew 5, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Make your allegiance to Jesus evident no matter what it costs because it will be worth it. And then thirdly and finally, Do not fear. The end is near. 
Do not fear because the end is near. No matter how threatening the beast may seem, we must not fear him. We must not fear them. Jesus has overcome and he will overcome fully and finally one day very soon. And when he comes back, listen y'all, he's going to put it to the beasts. Listen to this in Revelation chapter 19 of the destiny of these beasts. The beast was captured and with it the false prophet, the other beast, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The beasts do not overcome the lamb. The lamb overcomes them. Do not fear, no matter what they call you to do. Because Jesus is coming back very soon. And when he does, we shall be with him forevermore. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray that you would indeed help us to trust not what we see in our age of deception, but to trust what you say. God, would you guard us from being duped? Would you give us minds that are able to discern well between truth and lies? God, we pray that you would help us to make our allegiance evident Tell us that we ought not be ashamed of you. God, would you give us grace? We are so tempted. We're so cowardly and fickle. Lord, would you help us to represent Jesus in everything that we do, compassionately and courageously. Oh God, would you help us? And Father, would you help us to not be a people who fear, but to know that the end is indeed near to help us to know that we are nearer than when we first believed, even than when we began this, this message or this prayer. Oh, Father, we pray you would send your Son soon. Send him soon. Between now and then, would you help us who are weary to take refuge in you? Give us grace. In the name of Christ.